0: So the reading tonight is taken from Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you.
1: Can we um, just give Emily a big round of applause for nailing those names, actually? I'm just not even gonna bother saying any of them, so that's how I've avoided that. People matter everywhere you go, on the high street, in the high court, and on the highways, on the web. Turn around, open your ears, look and focus. Every face you see was created with a purpose. Chosen and dearly loved, not a single mistake made. What a beautiful thing, that human race. There's something miraculous that's starting to happen. As we've read his letters, we've been stirred into action. You see, when we dwell richly in the one who is holy, suddenly for the many we become. He's the way and the truth, the hope and the life. When it's darker than dark, I'm blinded in his light. How could I forget that Jesus is my saviour? That that truth ain't just for me, but every one of my neighbours. There will be times to profess, to prepare all the same. But it's the way that you live that can roar out his name. Words without deeds, like an out-of-tune drum, it's dead and wobbly and useful to no one. So go and show and tell everyone you know. Like when you carried Buzz Lightyear into primary one because people really matter, even the difficult ones. You matter. Don't batter or awkwardly natter or give me that false humility patter. I'm not even trying to flatter. It's just a fact. So let your head get fatter. You matter. And if I have to admit that, I have to admit this. If you lot get counted, then I can't be missed. I matter too. Even when my head is down, when the tears roll, when the guilt comes, or the anger takes hold, I matter when I have nothing to give, nothing impressive, or come bearing any gifts. I matter because he declared it. Am I going to argue with the king of kings? People matter everywhere you go. Maybe our life's purpose is to get up and let them know. We've been looking at this letter to the church in Colossae, written by this guy, Paul, who's under house arrest. He's under imprisonment, actually, in Rome, uh, for spreading the message of Jesus. And throughout the letter, uh, we've been noting that there's three key themes that's been hitting us as a church, as a community here, that was that have really settled in. And actually, they're the same sorts of ethos that we use uh, when um, in our connect groups. Johnny was talking about connect groups earlier. Connect groups have like an ethos, a purpose, and that's up, in, and out. The up that we've learned from Colossians is that Jesus uh, is that Paul speaks about Jesus being supreme over all things. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is bigger than our culture or our vocation, our finance or romance or fear or wrongdoing or success or failure. He's bigger. And because he's bigger, when we look up to Jesus, it starts to impact us on the inside. So Colossians isn't just about the up, it's about the in. The in, meaning that following Jesus, because his ways are higher, that means that our practice of following him has to be higher, has to be higher than the ways in which we live in our world here in the West in 2021. So that we can be formed by Jesus on the inside. So it starts up, then it comes down into us. And then lastly, it doesn't stay there it then goes out. So it starts up, then in, then goes out. These truths that we're learning go out to all the people and have to be shared and have to be spread. This, this stuff about Jesus, it's the life hack. It's the hottest trend. It's the viral blow-up, break-the-internet-life-everything-truth. We are gift receivers, but then we become gift givers. We have a purpose. A ministry. Now, sometimes that word ministry is used to describe a particular vocation or a particular person, a minister. But actually, we all have a ministry. The word ministry or minister means to serve, to be generous, to be gift givers, to give freely what we have freely received. And this ministry that we're called to We're called to make it extraordinary. And to make it extraordinary, it's all about relationships. You see, extraordinary ministry is marked by extraordinary relationships. Uh, The film Dead Poets Society is a great film, Robin Williams, and uh, it's got this very famous um, use of the Latin carpe diem. And whether you've seen the film or not, you've probably heard that phrase before, carpe diem, seize the day. And uh, Robin Williams, he says to, to his class, he's a teacher and he says to these young guys, he says, listen, carpe diem, seize the day, make your lives extraordinary. And sometimes that phrase is used as kind of like a hedonistic cry, you know, just live for the moment, do what you want, do as you feel. But I wonder if making our lives extraordinary, seizing the day, I wonder if that actually looks like. Living out extraordinary ministry through extraordinary relationships. Jesus was asked in the Gospels, what, are the two most, what is the most important way to live your life? Of all the commandments, of all the stuff that we could be told of how to live, of all the things that we can try, what is the most important way to live? What is the thing that we've got to carry into our every day? And Jesus gives this answer. He says, the two most important ways of living are this, love God love people. Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. Place him up there, supreme, over culture, over the world, over relationships, finance, romance. Whatever it is, make him number one so that that feeds and influences your mind, your body, your soul, your heart. Everything about you flows from the truth that Jesus is higher, greater than all things. The greatest source of peace, love, life, joy, you name it, comes from him. And then secondly, love your Neighbor, love your neighbor, and I love that because it's really, he could have said, like, love your best friends or love your family. Well, obviously, we don't need to be commanded that, we don't need to be told that, but love your neighbor, the people you don't choose, the single mum you bump into on the stairwell, the colleague you share a desk with, the friend that you go to tutorials with at uni or the classmate, Or sometimes the people that are unlovely, hard to love, love your neighbor. To love people is to minister to them, to serve them. And to serve them extraordinarily is to be in an extraordinary relationship with them. Tom Wright talks about like a thread. It's like we we are all one thread, one cord, one strand. And when we gather people around us in our lives, we add strands to that cord. And soon enough, all these cords, they weave together, intertwine together, and they become knots, and they get stronger and tighter, and the bond gets greater. And suddenly, this one cord is something that's really, really strong, really tough, able to withstand hard times and difficult situations, able to celebrate in the good times and to carry in the bad develop extraordinary relationships. Paul exhibits some of the relationships that he is in in our passage. He talks about fellow workers, fellow servants, fellow prisoners, dear friends, dear brothers. Paul's life of following Jesus and sharing about Jesus is marked by relationships. It's shared with other people. Two of the relationships I want to hone in on, also conveniently are two of the names that were easiest to say, are justice and mark. Because extraordinary relationships are marked by proximity and redemption. Extraordinary relationships are marked by proximity and redemption. Firstly, by proximity. So we've got this character, Justice, or Jesus Justice. You know, he's only mentioned once. In any of Paul's letters, he's mentioned once. That's it. We don't hear about him again, we don't have any background on him, we don't really know anything other than he was a fellow Jew, fellow friend, significant enough to Paul to be mentioned in this letter, to be read out to other people, to strangers, to people in a church, whatever, like significant enough to have his name mentioned, but we don't really know what he got up to with Paul. And it's possible that he did something amazing and worked alongside Paul and all that sort of stuff, but I feel like we'd, be, we'd know about that. We'd be told, because we're told about everybody else, why not justice? Maybe the thing that made justice significant enough to Paul was the fact, simply, that he was just there. He was just there. Nothing special, just simple. He was there. Not a big name, big figure, big personality. He was just present. His proximity to Paul made his relationship with Paul extraordinary. I have learned this really keenly in a friendship that I have, Uh, and there was this time a couple of years ago where a really, really close friend of mine got delivered some really bad news, a, a really tough medical diagnosis and really, really difficult. And they they were obviously really burdened by the the diagnosis itself, but also then having to tell people that they loved, that they've got this thing going on in their lives, they didn't want to be a burden to other people. And when they told me, it was really, really painful. It was really, really tough. But in order to try and make that easier for all of us, in, in their kindness and just out of compassion, another friend was added to that conversation. And so there were three of us talking, and it's a shared friend, this other friend, a very, very good friend as well of mine. And as I was hearing this diagnosis, and yeah, of course, when you're hearing news like that, it's like trauma. Like you don't really remember all the details of what's being said, you don't really remember what you say, you're just hearing this like fact, it's just like words are coming at you and you're just reeling. And it's painful. And I remember this, this other friend was standing, like, here, like, really, really close to me. And they didn't say anything, didn't offer advice, didn't ask any questions, didn't even say, hey, hey, can I pray for you, or anything like that. All of that stuff, good stuff. But they just did nothing. In fact, the only thing they did was stand really, really close and put their hand on my shoulder. And it was perfect. It was everything I needed in that moment. It was their close proximity that meant that I felt safe, I felt comforted, and it it showed that our relationship was extraordinary, that they were there for me. They were just simply there. There's power in proximity. So who are you close to? Who do you need to be closer to? Not to fix or talk or solve any problems. Just be close to. I can be the worst at that. People, my friends or whoever can bring me a problem and I go straight into solvent mode, okay? Go straight into like, here's three things that we can try or some other techniques or somebody else that we can bring into this. We can solve this problem. And the problem is, I'm sure you know, there are some problems in life that can't be solved or at least not easily or not quickly. And the moment you hit one of those, I'm stuffed. I don't know what to do. I feel powerless, and I can drive my friends, close friends, absolutely bonkers, trying to like, solve a thing that they just want to talk about. They don't need it solved because it can't be solved. They just want somebody there. I am keenly trying to learn how to just be there for people. Maybe you can think of a certain situation or a person or relationship that really, maybe you've been trying to push something up a hill, get something fixed, get something sorted, and it's not changing, and you're getting frustrated, and it's kind of straining the relationship that you're in, and really the other person, they weren't asking you to solve it, they're just looking for comfort, just for you to be there. I don't know if anything like that is happening for you, but I can easily come up with examples of that for me. There's power in proximity. Extraordinary relationships are marked by proximity but also by redemption. Another person in this passage that I want to highlight is Mark or John Mark or Mark the Evangelist as he's otherwise known as. We're told that he's a fellow prisoner. He's connected to Paul in a significant way. Paul mentions him in a really significant way. We know that they've been doing some business together, they've been working together. But that's not actually all of the full picture. That's not the backstory to this relationship. Mark actually, with Barnabas and with Paul, were originally like three musketeers, the guys who were out there doing the ministry, traveling around together, bound tight. But in their first trip together, Mark actually left. He quit. John Mark said, for whatever reason, it's not enough, or it's too much, or it's difficult, or it's hard, so he quit. He walked away from the mission. And Paul obviously found this difficult. This was tricky for him because Paul and Barnabas, they were tight and they had to plan the second trip and they had a debate, a disagreement. Should we bring Mark? Should we bring this guy? Because he's just going to quit on us. Can we actually, is it right to take him? I don't think it's right to take him. And Paul and Barnabas have this disagreement about it. So much so that Barnabas and Mark go separate from Paul to do different journeys, different things. They just have this disagreement that they can't find a way on. Paul said, nah, this isn't going to work. He's a quitter. I don't need a quitter on my journey. I don't need somebody like that on the mission. He cancelled him. However, though Paul initially rejected Mark, he seems now, from what we're reading, to have redeemed that relationship and reconciled himself to Mark. Because he's mentioning him here in the letter. And, in fact, actually, Mark, as we know, is a fellow prisoner. So not only is Mark, like, back in the fold as pals, Mark's, like, back on the mission with Paul, in the nitty-gritty, there, imprisoned, in Rome, together. Clearly, cancelling Mark was something Paul regretted and wanted to change. Cancelling people, based on their mistakes or failures, does not make for extraordinary relationships, nor does it make for extraordinary ministry. In fact, cancel culture finds no place in the way of Jesus. There is no such thing as cancel culture when you follow Jesus. In fact, it is the opposite of the message of Jesus. Our time, our era now is rife with cancel culture. I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. It's happening constantly all the time. There's somebody else in the news or in our own lives that we're discovering we can't talk to anymore or talk about or appreciate or enjoy or whatever because they are now cancelled. Like, even trying to keep up with it can put your head in a bit of a spin. It's exhausting trying to work out, who am I allowed to listen to now, or am I not allowed to listen to them? Who am I allowed to watch and tell I can't watch them anymore. Uh, who am I allowed to be friends with? I can't be friends with them anymore. Who am I allowed to work with now? I can't work with them. It's exhausting. Cancel culture is everywhere. What terrifies me is that it could happen to me. What if I get cancelled? <laughs> I'm glad you find that so funny. <laughs> Hanging people permanently for their transgressions or for parts of their character that I don't agree with is the opposite to extraordinary. In fact, today, it's really very ordinary. It happens all the time. But we're called to make our lives extraordinary, as Robin Williams said. We're called to something higher. You know, Jesus had every right to cancel me and didn't, and doesn't, and never will, and it's true for you as well. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to be reconciled to? Who have you may be quit on because they quit on you? Who have you canceled? How could you show another way of living in this time that we're in? How could you be extraordinary with your grace and your mercy and your kindness? Extraordinary ministry is marked by extraordinary relationships. And we're called to make our relationships with one another extraordinary by being close and by redeeming stuff when it goes wrong, forgiving when there's mistakes made, Being there may be when nobody else would be there. Because that's exactly what Jesus did with us. You know, there's this word for God, which is Emmanuel, and it means God with us. There was something wrong about our relationship, so God made two choices. He got close, and he redeemed us. He reconciled himself, reconciled us to himself. So we're called to live that out too.